Right, so when we were back four years ago, when we were talking about bibliology, the study of the Bible, we, I used a term that we don't use every day unless you're an English teacher, and that is genre. And genre is not a complicated concept. We instinctively know it. We talked about it a little bit the other day, that I don't read the phone book the same way that I read a novel. If I want to pick up the phone book and I'm looking up Cawthorn's Bakery, I don't start with AAA Bail Bondsman and read until I get to Cawthorn's. That's not how you use that kind of a book. And so I want to talk a little bit about the genres that we find in the Bible. Uh, one of them is histories. And so I, I picked up one of my favorite history books. It is straight up worn out because I've read it so many times. It's called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. Uh, it's a look at the Reformation and where we came from out of, as Baptists, out of the Reformation. And it's a historical look at that. And so the author uh, sat down, Leonard Verdun, and sat down to, to identify a specific thesis that he had written and follow that through to its end. There's a big difference between a history and a narrative. This is uh, how baseball explains America. And this author, um, uh, um, Hal Bodley, takes stories from American baseball games and shows how this is the way that the American public reacted to this in 1940. This is what happened in 1950. In the 70s, this happened. He's using baseball as a way to tell the story of America. So this is a very different style of books. You can literally sit down and read this book in, a, in an evening. It's, it's very light. It's fluffy. This book, you read a chapter and you go, I have no idea what he said. And you have to turn around and start back over again because it's detailed. It has lots of information. It has lots of footnotes. But we still instinctively know that there's a difference. There's a difference between we tell, us telling stories because when you're telling stories, you don't necessarily care about it being sequential. So if you're reading the, uh, the book of Matthew, Matthew is written thematically. His purpose is to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the kingship of Israel. And so he doesn't tell stories in a way that is, and this happened, and then the next day this happened. It's not a biography of Jesus. It's stories that Matthew, who was around Jesus, saw, and so he might say, and so Jesus came along and he healed this guy. And Oh, and then one time, and we instinctively know that's how we tell stories. We do that all the time. In fact, if you come up here on Sunday night, before CR, after everything's been set up, there'll be one of the tables that all the old men will get around. Yeah. Lots of coffee will be poured out. And what will happen is for a good 30 or 45 minutes, somebody will say, well, I one time uh, shot a deer. And then somebody beside them will say, you know, speaking of deer, that reminds me of the time that I shot a deer and it jumped in a tree. And then somebody over here is going to go, you know, speaking of trees, I tried to plant some trees and they got... And that's the way around the table, round and round it goes, with everybody just telling stories. And none, nobody telling those stories lets the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> but it's not nobody is going to listen to those stories and assume that they're occurring sequentially. And so how, what you're, the reason why you're telling the stories affects the way you tell it. Mark is trying to write Peter's story. The book of Mark is actually Peter's story. It's what 
Peter is saying happened. And so it is, you, it's, it's an insight into Peter's mind. And everything happens immediately. The whole book, you can read the book of Mark literally in about 30 minutes. And when you finish, you feel exhausted because every other word is. And then immediately. And he tells stories. You, it's almost like you can hear Peter being out of breath. And so Jesus is going along. And this dude who was super important in that village. In fact, he built a synagogue. Comes walking up to Jesus. And Jesus is talking to him. And he says, Jesus, my child is sick. Please come and see her. And so Jesus is walking with his, all of his friends and all of this huge crowd. This huge cadre. They're walking through down down the road and as they're walking some a lady comes who was unclean she had had an issue of blood and she thought to herself if i only touch the hem of his robe then i could be healed and so she touched him and immediately jesus stopped so in your mind you can picture this larry moe and curly jesus stops and everybody piles up on him and he goes who touched me peter being the smart aleck says what do you mean who touched you there's this huge crowd everybody's touching you he says, no, something's up. And he's looking around, and the lady goes, uh, and Peter, the, the book of Mark tells us that she was very afraid. It says, I'm the one who touched you. And so Jesus deals with her with compassion and love, even though ceremonially touching her because she had an issue of blood would have made him unclean, even though the religious elite would have said, no, that she is of no value, Jesus dealt with her, and the, the story contrasts the man of high value and this woman of no value, and how Jesus is loving her. And you think, okay, so the lesson here is that Jesus is going to deal with the... But then and immediately, the servant comes running up and says, don't even bother the master anymore, My, the kid is dead. Jesus, dealing with compassion with the other guy, turns. And so the story just dumps, 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 dumps. And it finishes this story, and then immediately. And so... You have over and over and over again the word immediately because that's the way Mark is trying to tell Peter's story as Peter is breathlessly going, oh, and then one time, Jesus, kind of a thing. Luke has a very tight theme. He says, I sat down, I interviewed people. It's almost like a history. And he, but he repeats thematically things that occur. And then we can see that what he's trying to do is show that Jesus is a prophet and Jesus is a priest and that Jesus is the king, and that he fulfills fully those roles. And, and so he's got a theme, and he's got an arc, but there's a reason why he tells a story is. And we can understand that. We have stories. When we were little kids, we read Mark Twain in school, and where the red fern grows, and we cried with our third grade teacher, and yada, yada, yada. We understand how narrative works. We also have law. And law is written very differently than any, it's more along the lines of a phone book. If I wanted to know what the criminal code is for somebody who's driving down the road without a taillight, I'm not going to start in the beginning and listen to all the yeah, yeah, that all the, the lawyers in, in the house wrote about how awesome they are. And I'm not going to read the parts in here about manslaughter and domestic violence. I'm, no, I'm going to have a section and I'm going to go to that section. And God gave us the law. He told, shows us the law so that we can see his character, his nature. It's in, the law is important. I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm saying that just about everybody who tries to read through the Bible in, the, in a year gets to the book of Leviticus and crashes and burns because they're reading it sequentially and they go, okay, so if a cow gets out and gores somebody then that cow's to be stoned, 
and then the person's fine. But if the cows gorge somebody before, then the person is to be tried for manslaughter and carried out and stoned. Okay, that's going to help my spiritual walk. Don't eat a kid that's been boiled in its mother's milk. How does that help me? Before the priest goes before the Lord, he's to take his thumb and put oil on it and anoint his forehead and anoint the forehead of the people around him and then put some oil on his big toe and on the back of his knee and on the back of his shoulder. Why am I reading this? Ah! Because we're trying to read Leviticus the same way that we read First and Second Samuel, which are narratives. Or that we're reading First Chronicles, which, are, which is a, a history. So, but, again, instinctively, we have law. We know how to read the law. We do it silly sometimes. We don't think about genre. And, but we do know how to read it. Poetry. Poetry doesn't have context. Often, I'll have somebody come up to me on Sunday morning, 10 seconds after I said amen, and go, hey, preacher, can I ask you a question? This passage in 1 Corinthians says that a woman is not supposed to pray unless her head is covered. Does that maybe mean that my wife's supposed to wear a hat? And I have to go, wait, what? what is, what's going on? And oftentimes, if they have a question about a te text, all I can have to do is read, if it's a one verse that seems to say something strange, if you read the paragraph, not the chapter, the paragraph above it, down through where he said it, and the paragraph after it, putting it in its context, all of a sudden it'll make sense. I remember very well one time I was, I was doing evangelism, and I had a lady come up to me. She had a piece of paper, so she had prepped, and she said, Preacher, read, and I don't remember what the text was, you know, Matthew 19.4. So I read it, and it says, And Jesus said to them, uh, Go out and do not take any script with you. Do not take an extra belt. Do not take anything with you. Okay? And I'm thinking, why am I reading this? She goes, okay. Now, read, and then she gets, you know, Luke 4.9. And, and I read it, and it says, When you go out, take extra money, take an extra coat, and take everything that you need so that the people around you, you won't have to be dependent on them. See? Jesus contradicted himself. And I'm like, okay, do you have any kids? And she said, well, yes, I do. I said, have you ever walked into the living room and your kids are sitting around and you said, get out of this house. Put the Game Boy down, put your phone down, get out of the house. Go outside, get some vitamin D, get some sunshine, get out of my house. Have you ever said that to them? Yes, I have. I said, okay, we all have. I mean, every parent has at some point has walked in and just said, what are, what are you doing? It's a beautiful day. Why are you watching Bugs Bunny? Get out of here. Have you ever walked in and thought, where's the kids? Looked outside and it's raining a little bit and the kid is walking along the driveway splashing in every mud puddle that he can see and you yell out the door get in this house you are literally too dumb to get in out of the rain get in the house well yeah i have done that so which time did you lie what do you mean well one of you you told him get out of the house and then a different time you're telling me you told him to get in the house which time did you lie well i didn't lie it was just different circumstances well there you go 
And the, the first time, Jesus was sending out the 70 for the first time they had ever gone out. And Jesus wanted them to learn faith. So he said, don't take anything extra with you. Everywhere you go, God's going to provide for you. Sometimes it's going to be through other people. Sometimes it's going to be miraculous. But don't take anything. God's got this. A few times later when he sent them out, he said, you know what? I don't want people thinking that we're a bunch of mooches. I don't want you to be dependent on people. So when you go out, you take everything you need. He wasn't lying either time. That's not a contradiction. You just have to read it and put it in its context to understand it. But with poetry, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, there is no context. They're poems. Um, I was uh, asked Sunday night, I thought I was going to have to teach CR uh, and hadn't prepared, so I got tonight's lesson. And so I grabbed Robert Frost's poetry and I actually taught this to the young adult Sunday school class, and so I had it handy. And I grabbed this poetry book, and then Max showed up, and he was just late because of some basketball game that somebody's playing. I don't even know what's going on. But, um, so he was prepared, and I didn't have to teach. And so I, I had the book in my hand, and I started flipping through, and there's uh, some of the poems, and, and this is Robert Frost, the complete works of Robert Frost, that I had not read in a long time. And reading uh, those poems for the first time in 20 years in some cases was like running into an old friend. It was really neat because I'm like, oh my, I'd forgotten all about that. Ah, oh, there's something about nature that abhors a wall, kind of thing. And, and just as I, as I was reading through. And, but there's no context. I can read poems in the front and then flip around to the back and there's no context. They're standalone. And the Psalms are the same way. There's no context. They're written loosely in four different books that are thematically put together, talking about the majesty of God to the protection of God. But that's, again, very loose. You can, if you are afraid, run to Psalms 121. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. I cast my eyes to the hill from where my help comes. Woo! That's some good stuff. If you are feeling like you can't get control of your thoughts and that every, every, everybody's against you, go to Psalm 3. God, rise up, strike the jaw of my enemy, knock out his teeth. Because we've got an enemy, Satan, whispering in our ear. And so those Psalms don't have a, a greater context. They're just poems. Ecclesiastes is a poetic book. It's written to where the writer goes, okay, so I, as a young man, decided I wanted to find out what's going to make me happy. So I tried money, and I had more gold than all the kings in the world. I had so much money that the silver in Jerusalem was treated like copper. Everything on my doors were made out of bronze, and that didn't make me happy. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So I tried my career. And I worked hard. And I, as the king, was the best king that Israel's ever had. I went out and I built horse stables. And I increased the, the, the realm. And I, I built up the walls. And that didn't make me happy. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I tried to party. I got together with my friends. I got more porcupines and wives than anybody had ever had. I tried to party like, like it was 1999. I didn't even know what year that was. And that didn't make me happy. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But then they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. 
And so the whole book is a poetic look at his life. It's clearly out of order because he can't be a young man four different times as he goes through four different scenarios. He's just saying that nothing will satisfy you in life except God. That no matter what you strive for, and he's doing it poetically. We understand how that works. We understand that when we read in the Psalms where the Bible says that the earth is God's footstool, we don't in our mind imagine that God's reclined on Jupiter with his feet propped up on the earth. We understand that the writer there is trying to say that the things that we get all worried about didn't mean a hill of beans. It's not going to mean a hill of beans in 10 years, much less 100. And we do that with literature that we read today. When I uh, say that my wife's eyes are like diamonds, I'm not implying that they're cold and hard and can cut glass. And everybody knows that. We know how poetic license works. So as we read Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if we remember what the genre is, we can understand it better. My final genre is letter. I can get a letter... And if I get a letter from someone, uh, if the, the secretary doesn't cut it in half on accident, um, if I get a letter, I read it. I start at the beginning, and I read the letter. I'm not going to reach in the middle of, the, of this letter that somebody wrote me and pull out something out of the middle and try to make it say something it doesn't. Paul says uh, to Timothy, physical exercise profits little. Focus on your soul. I cannot tell you how many gyms I've been in that are owned by a Christian that have painted on the wall, physical exercise profits, the Apostle Paul. It's like, oh, for the love. Yes, he did say those words, but that's not what he was trying to say. We do the same thing when we say, well, brother, all things are going to work together. They're all going to work together. You're going to get you a new truck and a pony. Well, if you read Romans 8 in its context, what Paul's actually saying is you're going to have terrible things that come into your life and God's going to use that to convert you into the image of Christ. So he's saying the opposite of it's all going to work out the way you want it to. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 won't even let us get close to thinking that because he said there are some that wandered in dens and deserts who wore skins of animals. They did not receive the promise. I've joked that I, I want to get that printed on a, a T-shirt. Did not receive the promise and see how many people go, wait, what? Because they waited for a better thing. So we take a letter, we read the letter in its entirety. And yet I've taught Bible studies before, and when we were learning to, to read the book of Philippians, and so when I say, okay, let's read the book of Philippians, let's read that letter. And people look at me like I'm asking them to read War and Peace by next week. Most of, the, of Paul's letters, if you print them out on an 8 and a half, 11 piece of paper, the book of Philippians is two pages. The book of Ephesians is four pages. You can literally read it in 10 minutes. But we don't treat it like a letter. We treat it like a collection of verses, and that's not what it is. But we have letters. We can understand how to read letters. We get letters. I remember when I was in the, in the Marine Corps and and, and Ann and I were, were madly in love with each other. She wrote me a letter every day. And I guarantee you that when I went and got my letter from her that day, sometimes they would just be, hey, really busy, uh, studying for my badminton class, love you. 
Sometimes they would be multiple pages. But I, no matter what they were, I didn't go anywhere. I got my letter, and I sat down on a wall or something right there, and I read it right there. And then maybe I'd read it the first time as fast as I could, and then I'd read it again, and then I'd read where she said she loved me two or three times. <sighs> In fact, the only time that I came that In fact, storm, Desert Storm, Desert Shields, the only thing that saved me from getting written up and, and a non-judicial punishment. I had a staff sergeant that was the mail guy who got, gathered the letters, and, and he was supposed to deliver them. And he had a bit of a drinking problem. And so one day, it was, it was about 6 o'clock, and I hadn't gotten my letter yet, and so I went looking for him. And I found him in the enlisted club, and I found their mail scattered around the floor. And I, I did not deal with it maturely because letters are important. And you have a collection of letters in your Bible that are amazing letters. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude are all letters. Some of them are funny. You really get uh, want to have insight to Paul. You read the, the letter that he wrote to Philemon. Philemon, a slave, had stole from Philemon run away and come to Rome and accidentally met up with Paul and Paul led him to the Lord. And so Paul sends this runaway slave back to his master who also happened to be someone Paul had led to the Lord. And so Paul writes Philemon and, say, uh, uh, Philemon and says, your slave, it means a lot to me. I sure do love him. If he owes you anything, you charge that to my account. And remember, you owe me your life. But just you go ahead and you, you let me know how much I owe you. But remember, I'm the one that introduced you to Jesus. <laughs> there are letters that are, that are angry. Galatians is angry. He starts out, who has bewitched you? There is no introduction. There is no, hey guys, how's it going? Like there is in the other letters. He starts out angry. 1 Corinthians, he is so angry. At one point he says, if I have to come with you, I'm coming with a stick. Sounds like my mama all talking. And then 2 Corinthians starts out, he goes, I was so afraid that I'd overplayed my hand with the last letter that I sent you. I sent Timothy ahead to get to Corinth, and while he was going, he ran into the guy that was bringing your, your, your response to my letter. And when I read that you guys had repented, I was so thankful, and so I sat down and wrote this letter. We have those letters, and we understand how they work. Absent from all of this that I have here, is apocryphal liter literature. Because we ain't got none. In the, in the English language, we have no apocryphal literature. We don't know how to read apocryphal literature. When something is like this and similar to this, when similes are getting thrown around, how is it like that? How is the swarm like locusts? Does it buzz? Is it just that there's millions of them? Are they like little helicopters? What are you saying? And we don't know. Because in our culture, we don't have apocryphal literature that we compare it to. I can read a letter from Paul, and I understand how a letter works. I can read a narrative, and I can picture and, and mark. I can picture Peter sitting around a campfire saying, and then immediately Jesus went and did this, and then after he got finished with that, oh my gosh, we were going across in the boat, and I thought I was going to die. I can picture him telling those stories because I understand narrative. I understand poetry. I know how much poems can be a balm. But when I get to prophetic, apocalyptic literature, 
I've got nothing in the English language for me to hitch my rod to. So I want us to take the next 20 minutes or so that we've got, and I want us to look at general eschatology by looking at the transfiguration to start learning how to read apocryphal literature. So Jesus is starting out normally, book of Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For, who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So it's that phrase, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, right after talking about the, taking up our cross, when the Son of Man, Jesus himself, comes back in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I've read several prophecy books that try to take that and twist it and make it say a whole bunch of stuff. Just read the next verse. Okay, so there were people that were standing right there. In fact, we know their names now. Peter, James, and John were standing right there that were about to get to see the Son of Man in all his glory. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So they came and they were talking with Jesus about his impending death. Now, Luke, who is t telling a story in his narrative, is tying this in with the fact that Jesus said, unless a man takes up his cross daily and, and follow me. So it's all one thought. This would have been, again, picture somebody sitting around a campfire telling a narrative, telling a story. It's all tied in together. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. I love that Luke throws that in there. Peter's an idiot. That's what that aside is. <laughs> Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and there was... Uh, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen. So Peter, James, and John all saw this. Nobody else. So Luke, writing this down, had to have gotten it from Peter, James, or John. So, Jesus said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so, we can read that and think, okay, so they're going to see what exactly is God's kingdom. So, two men were talking with him, and the text tells us who they were, Moses and Elijah. And so, Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Jesus often talking about the writings of Moses refers to it as the law. In fact, in common everyday language, the way we would say Old Testament, New Testament, a Jewish person in the first century would, would refer to the Bible as the law and the prophets. And so Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. I mean, Elijah was used by God to do some amazing stuff. So Peter says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's, he's looking to, uh, the, in fact, the same word is used for tents here, is used in the Old Testament for booths. Uh, there's a, a holiday in Israel that's called the Feast of Booths, and we read about it in Leviticus. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. And on the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as times of special convocation for presenting the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its proper day. And you shall dwell in tents or booze for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booze. So it's important for us to understand what's going on to look into what else would have been going on in their mind. So as we look at other prophecies, it means that if John is writing to Laodicea, we need to know what's going on in Laodicea for us to understand what's being said to them. Same thing with Ephesus, because it's easy to misinterpret things unless we understand what's going on with them. I can give you the example of Ephesus. Jesus says in his letter in Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus, he says, repent. He lists off. He goes, theologically, you guys are awesome. You're withstanding persecution. You as a church have your act together, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Go, return. Now, if we were writing it, we would say, and feel the way you felt at the beginning. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, go, return, and do what you did in the beginning. I've heard that text preached multiple times by people that try to make that about emotion. You've left your first love, which means that you need to go back and listen to some praise music and get you worship on and get to where you're feeling emotionally like you were when you first got saved. If that's what Jesus meant, though, he could have said that. What he said was return and do the things you did before. If Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so if... If we didn't know what happened in Ephesus, we could read that and go, well, that's interesting, but that can't help me. But God's given us the book of Acts, so we know exactly what happened in Ephesus when they first got saved. It said that they came together and they confessed their sins one to another, and then they took all of the books that they had for sorcery and witchcraft and put them in a pile and burned them, and it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were reckless in their abandonment of sin. 
They weren't trying to play church games and act like they had it all together. They were confessing their sins to each other, and no matter what it cost them, no matter what the price was, they were willing to get rid of things that were, was their sin. That's what Jesus is telling the church at Ephesus to do. Stop playing church is what he's telling them. You've got your theology right. You have spoken against heresy. Well, good job. You have withstood persecution. Good, good job. But you're sitting around acting like you have it together and you don't. And Jesus hates fakeness and hypocrisy because it's a cancer that will eat your soul. If you're struggling and you get a brother beside you and you say, Brother, I am struggling. I can't, I, this person that we're talking about here is hard to love. So I need you to pray for me. Or I'm struggling with this, alcohol, whatever it is. I, I just na name it. And stop acting like it's shameful that we have sin that we're fighting. Because you know what? Everybody's got sin that we're fighting. And so if we fake it, then we're not going to be able to fight it. And so to be in the fight, we've got to get our brothers and sisters beside us and be in the fight. And so you can't take that text in Ephesus alone. You have to be like the Bereans, search the Scripture, and know what was going on in Ephesus to understand it. And so here... For us to understand why Peter would say, why, hey, let's build a tent. It wasn't that he liked camping. There was a solemn, it wasn't, you know, I read, as I was reading and I was thinking in my mind, you know, Baptists would do a good feast of, of booze. That sounds like fun. We all get out. In fact, about probably about 20% of North Glencoe just did a feast of booze last week for spring break. They went up to Nakalula Falls and lived in tents. And on, they had lots of food offerings. Every, I went up there two or three times, and every time I went, whoo, the food was being offered before the Lord. I put on five pounds just walking by the place. <laughs> and so I, but that's not what it was. It was a very solemn, reverent time where they were saying, God came in amongst us. And so Peter, seeing Elisha and Moses and seeing Jesus' clothes change to where he couldn't even look at them. And his face radiated out just like Moses did for 40 days after he saw the Lord. And he was scared to death, which is why Luke does add that line. He didn't know what he was talking about. He's horrified. Which is why God breaks on the scene and says, This is the one you need to listen to. Do what he says. It's not, that is not, I actually heard a sermon where someone was saying, well, that was God the Father telling Peter, shut up, just do what he says. No, think about who Jesus was standing with. The law and the prophets and what the Father says, listen to him. He's a clear pronunciation of what my will is. He's not saying the law and the prophet are bad or he wouldn't have sent Moses and Elijah in the first place. But he's saying, the one that you follow is him. The disciples never forgot what happened that day on that mountain. And no doubt this was intended. John wrote in his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Peter wrote of it as well. We did not follow clearly invented stories when we were told about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on, that sacred, on the sacred mountain. Those who witnessed the transfiguration bore witness to it, to the other disciples and to countless millions down through the centuries. So as we study prophecy, first of all, we do have to keep it in context. We have to keep it in both the historic context of when it was written and what happened around there. And then we have to keep it in the context of the book that it is written in, in the book of Revelation, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke. We have to keep it in that context. And then ultimately we have to keep it in the context of God's whole ark. If I sit down and come up with a code to translate the book of Revelation that says that Jesus is coming back on, in 2019, and I come before you and say that, no, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because the, somewhere else in the Bible, Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. And so when people try to throw dates out there, they're just making themselves look stupid. So we have to keep it in the context of the book, we have to keep it in its historical context, and we have to keep it in the context of the whole Bible. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to look at, starting next week, there are multiple ways that prophecy has been interpreted. There is what most of you have probably heard growing up in a Baptist church, the dispensational view, which says that God chooses to speak through different dispensations and different ages, and that the dispensation that we're in now will end with the rapture, and then there'll be seven years of tribulation, or if you're a weird Baptist, three and a half years of tribulation in there somehow, and then Jesus will return, and then we'll have the millennium. I, I want to tell you that in in, in among theology students throughout history, that is far and away the minority view. There is a, the amillennial way to look at it, which says that after Jesus rose, until he chooses to come again, that all of that would be called the millennium, that God didn't mean necessarily specifically a thousand years. He was talking about an age, an epoch. And there are people who love the Lord who believe that. And I want us to look at it and see what the pros and cons of that position might be. And then there's the post-millennial view, which would say that Jesus is coming back, but he's coming back differently than a rapture and then a second coming. That he's, when he comes back, that that's, that's the end. There is no, and their argument would say there is no tribulation the way that we see it today, uh, or the way that if you read the Left Behind books, it would say. Now, um, I'm going to refrain from saying this is right and this is wrong when it's not clear in the text. Because, as we said a few weeks ago, there's, I can't know. And if I sit here and I'll tell you what my opinion is, and, and I will tell you up front that I, uh, I have a weird mix um, Of, of, of the way that I think that the Bible is saying it. But you know what? 
we don't have apocalyptic literature. It's hard for us to understand what's being said. Now, there are some things that there's no doubt. We know Jesus is coming back. There's no doubt in the Bible. I can say that with the authority of God's Word. He's coming back. We know that there will be signs and wonders that point to Him coming back. And so, and we know that when He comes back, He will reign with a rod of iron, and the lion will lay down with the lamb, and the, the, the swords will be beaten into plowshares, and we, we know what that millennium is going to look like. So, just get ready. It's going to be a wild ride. We're going to try, try, try to, to just simply look at what God's Word says. Yes. Well, I, I had someone say, um, I, I hope, uh, well, I forgot how I was actually t- turn of phrase, but yes, we, we don't know. And we will know. Um, I'm finished, so are there any questions? All right. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as over the course of the next few months, as we look at prophecy, we look at um, the way people have tried to understand this, that we would do so humbly, that we would do so with um, an open yet critical mind, and Lord, that we would um, believe you when you speak clearly. In Jesus' name, amen.